Welcome to this first anniversary episode of Transatlantic Takeaway, a joint production by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. In our show, we explore the impact of key political developments on the European Union and the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and welcome back to fellow host Rachel Tausenfreund from her leave. Thanks, Soraya. Glad to be back in our cozy Berlin studio here. We are also joined in the studio by GMF Guido Goldman Distinguished Scholar for Geostrategy, Thomas Kleinerbrockhoff, and via Zoom by Michał Bernowski, Senior Fellow and Director of the GMF Office in Warsaw. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Today we are talking about the future of Ukraine, where a sweeping war waged by Russia over the past 10 months shows no sign of ending in the foreseeable future. The chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff estimates 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers and a similar number of Russian soldiers have been either killed or injured since the war began. His estimate is that 40,000 Ukrainian civilians have also been killed. And with winter upon us in the Northern Hemisphere, the next months promise to be that much tougher for both sides as well as Ukraine's allies. Ukrainians have been suffering immensely in this brutal war. But Thomas, when you factor in strategic, political, and economic costs and think about positioning, who's in a worse position now than they were 10 months ago? Is it Ukraine, Russia, and what about the EU and the United States? Clearly Russia, because it's not where they expect it to be. And frankly, it's not where anybody here expected them to be. The resilience and the frankly, heroism of the Ukrainians turned the tide on this. They won a number of battles. The question now is, who is going to endure? Who is going to make it through the winter better? And clearly, Putin hopes the West is going to fall. Not so much Ukraine. You'd have to think that he's waging this war against Ukraine as much as against the West. He thinks the West is weak. We can't sustain this type of support, he believes. And you and Michal, you were in Ukraine in early October. So on this endurance question or just in general on the visit, what was your takeaway? What's your impression after that visit? Ukrainians are confident. They're confident to win. They're bullish in that sense, but they're not overconfident in the sense that there's no hooray type patriotism. There's no going overboard. In fact, I found there was a sort of a subdued mode on that, and that's because I think everybody has a friend who died, and they understand the price, and they understand the price is growing with the recent mobilization. They think the mobilization is what they call a human speed bump. It's not going to change the trajectory of this war, but it's going to be much more bloody, including for them. And uh, Michal, what about you? What was your main takeaway from this visit? My main takeaway was that Ukrainians are the most resilient people I've ever seen, both at the level of government, but also at the level of society. They have endured months of war, but when we arrived to Kiev, it was really like any other normal city. It was beautiful, sunny day. People were having coffees outside and the war was not too far, but people were standing up and maintain resilience as a society, as an economy, as a political system. Now, Ukraine has then endured a month of difficult bombings of civil infrastructure. So the losses have been very real, but the resilience persists. You know, here I agree with Thomas that it is about who will last longer, but I have no doubt that the Ukrainians will outlast 
uh, us all. And hopefully they will certainly outlast the Russians and hopefully the West will remain to be with them. But the resilience was the main message and the understanding and conviction that they will indeed win and that this will be a long fight, but that they will be victorious at the end. Michal, we seem to be entering a new phase of the war with the recent Ukrainian drone attacks on military targets deep within Russian territory. Does that worry the Poles and other Eastern Europeans, especially after last month's errant Ukrainian missile strike in Poland that killed two men? What really worries Polish people is how close the war gotten to our borders. The missile, most likely it was a Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile, fell in Poland, killed two Polish citizens, two NATO citizens, but it was very much because Russia, with its bombing, spread all over Ukraine, including Western Ukraine. So that's what really worries people. As you said, the war perhaps is entering new phase in a way that Ukraine is able to penetrate so deeply inside Russia, destroying planes in two strategic airfields from which Russian planes take off to hit Ukraine, but these are also airfields that uh, host strategic nuclear bombers. So this is very deep, about 650, 700 kilometers inside Russia. If this means an earlier victory for Ukraine, this would be something that would be welcomed by Warsaw. But there is some worry about the Russian response and potential escalation. Thomas, you wanted to add something? Yes, the question is not whether it is legitimate, uh, it is. The question is whether it's smart. The, uh, the Ukrainians wish, actually demand of the Americans to get longer range missiles in order to attack the ships that these missiles that attack their infrastructure come from. And are they convincing the Americans with striking deep into uh, in Russia with unmanned aerial vehicles when they need the Americans that have concerns about escalation? And what about the Germans? What are the fears in Berlin in terms of escalation, especially since we have these new strikes in Russian territory and with Putin warning all the time that no European city is safe? Well, there's not one Germany, there's two or many Germanys, many opinions here on that. I actually, my observation that especially the chancellor in his language has gotten more solid, more, you might say, tough, because he, as anybody else, is observing this war as an unjustified war and as a string of war crimes. So there is not much ambiguity in what he's saying here about the nature of this war. Uh, Michał, there was a disagreement between the Polish government and the German government on the Patriot missile defense systems. Warsaw wanted them to be sent to Ukraine. Germany was adamant that they go to a NATO member, in this case, Poland. So how does that look in terms of German-Polish alignment on the future of the war? Well, first of all, there is still pretty high criticism of Germany's speed in the so-called Zeitwende, the in transformation of German foreign and security policy. But the offer that you mentioned that Germany would place Patriot and time air and missile defense systems in Poland would be normally in the category of a very positive, friendly gesture from Germany to Poland. And it was received as such in the very beginning. But because of an ongoing parliamentary election here. And because the ruling party is to good extent 
campaigning on the premise that Germany is um, a very difficult ally at best and perhaps an unwilling ally at worst, the offer was rejected initially by the top politician. The latest is that Germany will, in fact, put the patriots in Poland, but it really is an X-ray of difficulty of this relationship, even how security cooperation can be sacrificed for domestic political gains in the short term. Let me ask you, Rachel, the U.S. midterms are finally over. Raphael Warnock's recent win in Georgia means that the Senate is squarely in Democratic or under Democratic control. But with the House in the hands of the Republicans, who appear to be focused on investigating Joe and Hunter Biden, what changes can we expect in U.S. policy to Ukraine? I mean, is there going to be a weakening of the resolve? So I was still in Finland ahead of the midterms, and I know there was a lot of hand-wringing there, as I know there was also here in Germany, about whether the Ukraine support would be in danger after the elections. Um, You'll remember, many of the listeners will know that Republican Kevin McCarthy, who's now uh, in line to be the Speaker of the House with the Republican majority, had made a comment ahead of the midterms that there wasn't going to be a, quote, blank check offered to the Biden administration. But this was politics. It was not a credible threat, but I do think it's an important signal that we should be aware of. So, yes, they're going to be investigating the Bidens. The GOP is going to try to block a lot of the Biden administration's initiatives. They're going to try to weaken and embarrass him as much as possible ahead of the presidential election. But the Republican majority is just too narrow in the House for McCarthy, even if he wanted to, and I don't think he even really wants to, to uh, block spending for Ukraine or aid to Ukraine. So in the short term, there's not going to be any real changes in foreign policy, especially vis-a-vis Ukraine. That said, it is an important signal, especially to allies, that there's something changing in the Republican Party and not only the Republican Party when it comes to the U.S. willing to lead globally and spend globally. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about the Russian war in Ukraine and the prospect of negotiations. Stay tuned to Transatlantic Takeaway. Democracy. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. This is Common Ground Berlin, and I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm the senior producer, Dina El-Sayed. Each week, we bring you a podcast aimed at deepening your understanding of critical issues in Germany and beyond. But to make our podcast even better, it's important for us to hear what you think. You can share that with us by rating the show on your podcast app. You can also write us a review on the platform you use to listen to our episodes. We look forward to your feedback. And join us again next Monday on Common Ground Berlin. Hello, this is Abby, presenter and co-creator of Berlin Briefing. Do you find yourself having trouble understanding the news of the Hauptstadt, usually presented in German? If so, Berlin Briefing can help. 
we curate local top stories and present them in an 8 to 10 minute podcast in English every Monday through Friday. You can find us at berlinbriefing.de or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway, where we are talking about the future of Ukraine. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson of Common Ground Berlin. And I'm Rachel Tausenfreund of the German Marshall Fund. We are joined in the studio by GMF Guido Goldman, Distinguished Scholar for Geostrategy, Thomas Klenabrokov, and via Zoom by Michel Baranovsky, Senior Fellow and Director of the GMF Office in Warsaw. So before the break, we talked about possible changes in U.S. policy toward Ukraine and support for the war. What about in Germany or wider in the European Union, if they are looking at the political dynamics in the U.S. and their own political dynamics, what about the resolve here to continue support? The European Union is struggling mightily to get the aid package for so-called macrofinancial support. That's direct budget assistance to Ukraine uh, squared away at the European Council level because Viktor Orban, of all people, and his Hungary are putting the brakes on that, trying to extract other compromises in other areas, rule of law most of all, and money spending for them. So the commitment that the European Union has made to help Ukraine through its budget deficit next year, 50% of which, assuming that the United States would do the other 50%, look shaky now. And when you then look at the American situation where the Republicans are coming in, are going to be uh, less bullish, less ready to spend larger amounts, they will also raise the question of burden sharing. And if the Europeans are then not able to commit because Viktor Orban, their friend, puts a, a veto in, then we're potentially in a difficult situation. And what about energy prices? It's getting cold here in Berlin as well. Do we already have a sense that this is going to be a political problem? It already is. I don't think people actually even know what their energy prices are going to be. We've all just in the mail last week found what our energy prices, electricity prices are going to be. We don't even know what gas prices are going to look like. So the compensation packages whether you're philosophically sympathetic or opposed to them, they're clearly serving a political purpose to hold the ground, not to cave in, to allow uh, to stand the ground on supporting Ukraine. It's clearly, it's all about politics, it's all about domestics, all about retaining domestic support in these energy price packages. My bill doubled, and that's just electricity, and it's not even about electricity. I don't even know what my gas bill will do. So what are German polls showing, though? Is it like in the United States where Republican interest and a prolonged support of Ukraine is waning? I mean, are we seeing that sort of fatigue here on this side of the Atlantic? Interestingly, no. I'm surprised. This is not maybe a slight weakening, but barely recognizable. Michel, what about Viktor Orban? Uh, Thomas mentioned that, you know, he helped derail $18 billion worth of support that was supposed to go to Ukraine. Um, how do the Poles feel about that? I mean, how is Warsaw reacting? Because it used to be that Hungary and Poland were very much allied against Brussels. Is that changing because of this sort of reluctance to 
help Ukraine win, or at least, I mean, the reason for it obviously goes beyond Ukraine. It has to do with Hungarian uh, reaction to the EU punishing it. But I'm just wondering how Poland feels about it. The Polish society um, or Polish public opinion is generally absolutely flabbergasted and surprised and dismayed about Hungary's position altogether for on, on Russia and the war in Ukraine and support for Ukraine. That said, the political and governmental policy toward Hungary has for a while cooled off. There was, I would say, a crisis in Polish-Hungarian relations, but right now they are back on track. And they are back on track because Ukraine and the war in Ukraine is only one of the important interests in the bilateral relations, but the one that is really, in this sense, more important for the current Polish government is Hungary's backing vis-a-vis Brussels, especially for in the context of Polish problems with the rule of law. Basically, the Polish government and the Hungarian government have each other's back when it comes to standing up to the pressure from Brussels on uh, rule of law. Even though in that sense, Poland is actually under a greater pressure than than Hungary. So that alliance, Polish-Hungarian alliance in the EU very much continues despite the total disagreement when it comes to Hungary's position vis-a-vis Ukraine. And Thomas, do you think in general the pressure to reach a negotiated settlement is increasing? I mean, the other news ahead of the midterms was this um, note to Biden by progressive Democrats sort of pushing for diplomatic engagement. And President Macron made some statements after his recent visit to Washington about security concessions to Russia that gave some pause to Olaf Scholz and others in Europe. Do you think there's rising pressure? Is it quickly rising in terms of negotiation? We we heard at the beginning the Ukrainians are, are not thinking like that yet. I would say the battle lines are still there. They're holding. They're not changing. Uh, somebody pops up with a statement here and there. The latest one was President Macron, who uh, suggested security guarantees for Russia. He didn't mean security guarantees for Ukraine, but for Russia. Uh, surprised many who thought uh, getting security guarantees for the aggressor rather than for the victim is an odd uh, proposal. But he, of course, thinks he wants to avoid another Versailles. That didn't go down well. So you have these these statements, but I think that the line isn't shifting. It isn't changing. There is an uneasiness in especially Western European and most of all in Washington about... uh, the course of the war in Washington, they're not sure whether Ukraine can actually take back territory to the degree that would be necessary to restore territorial integrity. We've heard that from in a statement from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And we still have the statement of President Biden standing from an op-ed in the New York Times months ago in which he said this war will end in a negotiated settlement. That still is the position in Washington. And that gets you to the question, what is the point at which that can start to become a reality? And so far, we're not seeing it. We're not seeing the ground shifting. We're not seeing the battlefield shifting significantly in nobody's favor. Michael, uh, is this something that worries the Eastern Europeans, a negotiated settlement being pushed by the West or by the United States uh, sooner rather than later? 
what would be very worrying, uh, and there is a worry about this apparent pressures, uh, but I think still at this time, I agree with what Thomas said, that there isn't a shift in terms of the West and especially the United States, who would be in the position of actually push Ukraine for early settlement, a settlement that is unjust and rewards uh, Russia. The weapons are still being delivered. We are seeing an improvement in quality and quantity of the weapons that are being delivered. You know, no one is turning off the tap, which is the most important aspect of this war. Americans still repeat the line, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. And that is key for us also in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And as long as it stands here, as long as there is no pressure for Ukraine to settle too early or to a solution that their society cannot accept, people are, you know, relatively relaxed uh, uh, or not too worried about this premature end of the war that would, in our case, mean that this war, war sooner or later would come back and perhaps not only to Ukraine, but to a NATO countries on the Eastern Front. Thomas. Um, the one thing that is changing is that there is a 39 billion US dollar supplemental to support Ukraine. So in fact, we're seeing the opposite. There are some statements, but the facts on the ground are support is, is strong and getting stronger for the next year. So uh, we have a really impossible last question for both of you since it's approaching the end of the year. We want to ask for your prognosis for the uh, war in Ukraine for 2023. Do you think it's going to end in 2023? Are you worried it's going to spread beyond Ukraine's borders or spread further into Russia? What's your prognosis for 2023 on this impossible situation? It's not going to spread into Russia. That's a, sh a chimera. That's a, so, sort of one of those concerns that is being dreamt up and being drummed up. The Ukrainians are fighting for territorial integrity. That territory is clear since 1991. They're not going to put tanks on the Red Square. If somebody tells you that, don't believe them. I have no clue how this war will end, how this is going next year. Boy, a year is a long period of time <laughs> you're, you're asking about during a war. Hard to say what's next week, given the facts on the ground. So, you know, everybody is considering the fact that there is snow, there is ice, that the war is going to slow down, that it's going to be very hard to sustain, especially for the Russians. The Ukrainians are better equipped for winter. They're more disciplined, very important in the winter trenches. But the question is, what will happen in spring? Will the Russians have fixed some of their problems? There's indications that the Russians on the battlefield are learning as well. Will they have resupplied? Will they be able to have offensive capability? Or is the opposite going to happen? Are the uh, Ukrainians catching a breath, so to say, after their battlefield wins in Kherson? And uh, as some, especially American analysts, suggest, will move towards Crimea. And Michal, what about you? What's your prognosis for 2023? Well, certainly we will not see the Red Square being taken over by Ukraine. That's never been a, a scenario possible in this world. No one is trying to reach that. Secondly, I also don't think that we'll have a spillover of this war into NATO territory. Frankly, Russia is just too weak 
to be able to do that in an organized way. Unfortunately, I do expect that we might see cases like we have on November 15th when debris or missiles fall in Poland, Romania, or other frontline member states of NATO. But I think my main prediction on what we are seeing right now on the ground is that the war will continue, perhaps not as hot of a phase as we have right now. Both sides are getting exhausted, but I do not think that we'll have a real settlement of this conflict unless this is one possibility that I really can imagine, but probably not already next year, that the defeats of Russian army on the ground create a political dynamic inside Russia, in Moscow, changing the politics there sufficiently for Russia to abandon its war of aggression on, on Ukraine. But probably, unfortunately, it is not going to be next year. Again, I think we are likely to finish this next year also in a state of a confrontation and conflict and war in Ukraine. Well, we're out of time and we have to leave it there. Thanks to GMF Guido Goldman, Distinguished Scholar for Geostrategy, Thomas Kleiner-Bruckhoff for joining us. And thanks to Michel Bernowski, Senior Fellow and Director of the GMF Office in Warsaw, for being on Transatlantic Takeaway. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you for the invitation. I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. And I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson. Transatlantic Takeaway is a joint production by the German Marshall Fund in Common Ground Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. In addition to Transatlantic Takeaway, all Common Ground Berlin and GMF's Out of Order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our respective podcast websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org. 